Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 16th, 2018. Looking forward to the President's Day holiday. Let's just say things have uh, ramped up since we brought Pirate Productions online. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, well, sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that is being put forward in today's evangelical churches is like not even close to what God's Word says. It's totally something different altogether. (laughs) And all you got to do, like 90% of it, you just got to open up your Bible. That's all you got to do and read things in context and you'll see uh, you're being manipulated, taken advantage of, and you're not being discipled. Uh, not the way, <laughs> not the way Jesus's disciples were discipled, or in the doctrine that they decide, you know, that they left for us to be discipling people into. Yeah, it's weird. So, um, <clears throat> let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You're going to note it's Friday. There's no theme. There's no, <laughs> no way to work a theme. Uh, you know, not with these kinds of uh, programs, especially when we're trying to end the week off with a good sermon. So uh, we're going to start with a BioLogos update, a BioLogos update, and kind of ans- ask the question, what do you say to somebody who says, you know, hey, you know, the, we, we're not really sure about what genre the um, uh, the first few chapters of the Bible are. You know, what, what do you say to that? <laughs> You know, because uh, the liberals and the postmodern emergence and all those kind of people, they will sit there and they will talk about the um, 
the first few chapters of the Bible as being theopoetry. And of course, here's the rub, is that they don't want to run afoul of evolutionary science. By the way, the science has not proven evolution. Far, 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 far from it. Uh, in fact, over and again, as, as science develops, that 19th century uh, theory put out by Charles Darwin using 19th century science, 21st century science is just blowing that thing apart. Just saying, you know, it, <laughs> it is. And uh, especially when it comes to, you know, genetic information. Yeah. Did you know there's information in your genes? Yeah. And the que- if there's information, the question is who put it there? Yeah, it would be an intelligent designer known as God. But we're going to take a look at uh, BioLogos and uh, a fellow by the name of Tremper Longman as he tries to explain to us how the first few chapters of Genesis are <clears throat> figurative, figurative. It's it's figurative uh, poetry, uh, figurative theological stuff. No, no, actually, it's not. It's history, and I'll prove it to you. And uh, we'll 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 rely upon the world's greatest theologian, the per, the the man who literally no nobody can touch as far as his credentials when it comes to scripture. And uh, then we will be checking in with Allison Rowe. And uh, this is a woman who has a YouTube channel and is one of the uh, YouTube prophetesses. And, and and she claims that she has received a direct revelation from God that the size of your battle confirms the size of your anointing. And uh, I, I'm just going to point out, I've been hearing people talk like this since I was in, in the charismatic movement years and years and decades ago. Yeah, but people were talking like that. So this isn't some new revelation that Allison has received. This is nonsense. Number one, it's not in the Bible. Number two, it's it's like, you know, I've been hearing folks talk like this for a while. Then we're going to check in with Eric Dykstra of the Crossing Church out there in Elk River, Minnesota. And um, unfortunately, he's decided that he's going to do a relationship sermon series, you know, because... Valentine's Day. This is one of the things that uh, attractional, seeker-driven type vision casting leaders like to do. Dykstra is going to explain to us how Jesus has given us relationship advice. (laughs) Relationship advice. Yeah, Jesus, the the love guru himself. And and it's it's like ridiculous to talk about what Jesus talked about as relationship advice. And uh, then uh, to end off hour number one, we're going to be checking in with uh, Levi Lusco. And I, I just got to ask the question. I'm going to put this out here right now. Is, is Levi Lusco kind of like Rob Bell just given up on Christianity? I know that sounds like a weird question, but I mean, he's like not even trying anymore to like do biblical sermons. It's It's the weirdest thing. And uh, this sermon will be kind of an example of what the you know, kind of what I'm seeing as a trend with him. He's making zero effort. I mean, zero effort to rightly handle God's word, and it's like on purpose, just kind of throwing stuff out that people want to hear. And then to end the uh, week off, we're going to listen to a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley as he uh, continues to uh, work his way through the Heidelberg Disputation. And the name of the sermon is titled Man's Work and God's Works. Yeah, Man's Works and God's Works. And that'll be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We got a lot of ground we need to cover. Again, no theme today. 
Uh, and uh, let's get to it since we're going to begin with a, uh, a BioLagos evolution update that requires us to do this. Oh, she loves a monkey's uncle, yeah, yeah. She loves a monkey's uncle, whoa, whoa. She loves a monkey's uncle. And the monkey's uncle's ate for me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves a monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves a monkey's uncle. Love all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine's. I love the monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle's ate for me. Yeah, that's right. She loves the monkey's uncle. So uh, we're heading over to the YouTube channel of BioLogos. And uh, this is a group that basically assumes evolution is true. And we've got to save Christianity from embarrassing itself by talking about the world as if it's actually been created, you know, by God in six literal days and stuff like that. No! Come on, Darwin has said. And and so uh, these are Christians who... Uh, are uh, you know the, <laughs> the best way I could put it is they like to give a, a pinch of incense uh, at the altar of Darwin uh, and yeah there's no reason to do this there's like none uh, and, you know science has not proven evolution like not even close to it so uh, let's check in uh, with their scholar Tremper Longman as he tries to you know kind of wrestle with the idea what do we do you know. What kind of uh, genre is is Genesis in the opening chapters and stuff? Well, let's listen in. And this uh, gets to the genre of Genesis 1 to 11, where I think we have theological history where actual events are being described in a figurative manner in order to make a theological point. Mm. Yeah, theological, figurative stuff. It's it's all about making a theological. I mean, there's events in there, but they're being described figuratively uh, for the purpose of making a theological point. Okay. And draw an analogy with, say, the apocalyptic portions of the New Testament, particularly the book of Revelation. Right, yeah. So Adam and Eve, not literal. No, he's just he's, he's there to make a figurative thingy. So, you know, to make a figurative theological point thingy. Uh, as we read the book of Revelation, we're reading about things that we believe are actually going to happen. You know, Jesus is... Go- Figuratively so, yeah. Granted, I mean, the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. And the, everything is, well, kind of locked up in these very dramatic word pictures that uh, John has uh, penned for us there. But the weird thing is, is that Genesis doesn't read like Revelation at all. Different genre altogether. In fact, Genesis from beginning to end is a historical narrative. And you see, it's an embarrassment to those who want to believe that, uh, you know, we evolved from great grandmammy and great-grandpappy, you know, ape, um, despite the fact there are no transitional uh, species at all in the fossil records. 
Um, you know, and so it's an embarrassment, though. And so uh, their solution is it's it's describing realish type of events, but it's figurative, like you know the Book of Revelation. So my immediate question is: At what point in the Book of uh, Genesis then are we to say, okay, now we've slipped from figurative into real historical narrative? I mean, yeah. yeah it, so they're 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 doing this because, well. You can't square Genesis if it's historical narrative. You can't square it with evolutionary theory. And there's a reason for this, and that is is that evolutionary theory is totally bupkis. It's, it didn't happen that way. God did not create the heavens and the earth uh, via evolutionary processes, and humanity is not something that came about as a result of the survival of the fittest. Like, far from it. No, we were actually created by God. To come back again. But do we read it as a description of how exactly it's going to happen? Is he really going to come back? False analogy, by the way. Fighting a storm cloud. It is a storm cloud, by the way, not a white fluffy cloud. This is Nobody questions about Revelation being figurative. Everybody knows that's the case. Storm God imagery from the Old Testament. Is he really going to come back riding a storm cloud? Uh well, then that would conflict with the picture we get in Revelation 19.11 and following when he's riding a white horse. Uh, so, in other words, in both the Urzite, you know, the deep, deep past, and the Enzite, the far distant future. Oh, he's using polysyllabic rare words. I mean, this, this proves this guy's smart. Yeah, oh, we better listen to him. Sure, we have depictions of actual events god did create us uh but using figurative language mm, all right so there's his <clears throat> hypothesis and let's just destroy it so let me ask you a question some of you already know the answer you've been longtime listeners to fighting for the faith but those of you who are recent and you have not heard this before let me just ask the question who among all of the people who've ever lived who've ever lived from Adam and Eve all the way to present day, who is the greatest theologian of all times, who has the best credentials, better than anybody else who's ever lived? And you're thinking, all right, um, you know, I can go with Jesus, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> if you went with Jesus, you got it right. It's Jesus. And here's the reason why. Jesus is none other than the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. Yep, it's, this is true. And uh, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And with those kind of credentials, you would think that Jesus, he could tell us definitively one way or another how we are to view Genesis, the opening chapters. And I would just like to posit it this way. I think you would be foolish to call yourself a Christian and have a different view of Genesis and the early chapters than Jesus did. Yeah, I'm just saying. And we actually know what he thought and taught about the early opening chapters of Genesis. Let, let me give you an example. <clears throat> Genesis, not Genesis, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 3, we, we read of this account from the eyewitness to this account 
who is the tax collector, Matthew Levi. Yeah, Levi, the tax collector, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And here's what he wrote as an eyewitness about what Jesus said about the creation account. So the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, well, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's right. So uh, Jesus literally said that what was written in Genesis, and it that he said that God created them from the beginning. Uh huh. Just like it says in the opening chapter of Genesis one, Bereshit bara Elohim, uh, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. So from the beginning, God made them. Male and female. And you're going to note, so not only does Jesus affirm that God created humanity, male and female, yeah, um, that, but God created us as binary human beings. Yeah, that's just, just awkward today, don't you think? But God created them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, reading from Genesis 2. So Jesus affirms the, uh, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And that human beings, um, that they were, well, created by God, male and female. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, so we've got an issue, and that is is that uh, this fellow from Biologos, Tremper Longman, his view of Genesis 1 is different than, well, Jesus' view. And it's important to note that uh, Jesus' view is also held by the apostles themselves. I'll give you an example. The uh, author of the Gospel of Luke, Luke, actually does a genealogy for Jesus, uh, Luke chapter 3, you can read it, and literally traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam. Mm -hmm. And unlike other people, you know, Adam is not the son of Enosh or the son of Seth or anything like that. Adam is listed having been created by God as the Son of God. Yeah, that, yeah. Luke 3.38, take a look at that. Um, you're going to note that the Apostle Paul also held the same view of the creation uh, that Jesus held. Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 says this in verse 14, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, even clearer, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, ad- and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Yeah, so you're going to note that uh, the Apostle Paul holds the same view of Genesis that Jesus has, and Paul's in good company because not only is he writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but his view of Genesis is the exact same view that Jesus had as far as its genre. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.13 says explicitly, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived. And then the uh, half-brother of Jesus, uh, Jude, uh, in his epistle, verse 14, said that um, that um, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the New Testament authors uh, are all in, a, in line with Jesus' view of... Um, 
of Genesis. And Jesus believed it was history, believed that Adam and Eve were literal people created by God, male and female. Yep. So uh, so the idea then is, is uh, I don't care who this guy from Biologos is. I, uh, you know, I, I don't care how smart he is or how many degrees he might have or how good of a scientist he thinks he is. He doesn't have better credentials than Jesus. And in order to have better credentials than Jesus, since Jesus proved that he was none other than God in human flesh, uh, which makes him an eyewitness to the creation. Yeah, Jesus was the one who said, let there be light and things like that. Um, that since uh, Jesus is an eyewitness, in order to have better credentials than Jesus, uh, uh, Tremper Longman would need to die and rise again in order to even have a shot at trumping Jesus when it comes to uh, the book <laughs> of uh, of Genesis. You know, just, just saying, I think that's a reasonable way to put it. So as a Christian, uh-huh, you don't want to have a different opinion of Genesis than Jesus did. I just think that would be ridiculously foolish. Moving along. Oh. Hallelujah. Get up right now. That's right, Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. So uh, we're going to be checking in with the prophetic YouTube channel of a lady who is a self-appointed prophetess. Her name is Allison Rowe, and uh, she's claiming that God has revealed to her that the size of your battle actually confirms the size of your anointing. Now, we're going to note that no biblical text says anything even remotely close to this. And uh, and so in order to claim that this is a teaching that we need to embrace as coming from God, we have to trust, we must trust, that Allison has actually heard directly from God himself. Here is Allison Rowe broadcasting from her car. Here we go. Hey, guys. Um, I'm not all cute today, so take it or leave it. But I wanted to hop on, and I, I just felt in my spirit that I... By the way, not only is she broadcasting from her vehicle, her vehicle is moving. Yeah, I, I, you would think that if she's hearing directly from God inside of her spirit and heart and stuff, that, that God would be saying, don't prophesy and drive at the same time. You know, you know, the texting and driving could kill you and somebody else. I'm pretty sure prophesying on YouTube while driving is, um, is a very dangerous thing. She is literally taking her life and other people's lives into her own hands, which she's distracted while giving this important word that God just dropped down right into her spirit, you know? Oh, had to share this. Um, a lot of you are battling right now. 
And I'm talking like real spiritual warfare battling. Like, it's heavy stuff. Sorry, I drive a manual, so bear with me. Um, yeah, that's right. Not only does is she driving and prophesying at the same time, she drives a manual. So she has a stick shift. Uh-huh. It's heavy stuff. And I can feel, you know, when you're prophetic, you feel not just what's going on with you or somebody that's right in front of you, but you feel what's going on in the body, right? So she feels stuff. Yeah, she she feels stuff. She she can feel it. She she's prophetic, you know. And you know how you know she's prophetic? Because she says she's prophetic, you know. Yeah, so all you have to do is say you are, and blammo, it makes you. At least that's how the charismatic movement works. I know when you guys are battling. I feel it. My spirit. Really, you know when people who watch YouTube are battling in their spirit. By the way, as of uh, the time we broadcast uh, this, this video has received, oh, just a little bit more than 30,000 views. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 30,000 views on this one. She can feel all 30,000 people, you know, because she's prophetic and stuff. And I know that many of you, a lot of you, have been in, like, intense warfare. And I feel like a lot of it has been so, it's like on your mind. The enemy has just been coming at your mind and just feeding you crazy lies and crazy, um... Yeah, here's the weird thing. What we're going to hear from her, I think, would qualify as a crazy lie coming from the devil. Now, let's keep listening. Just, just pulling on you, pulling on your truth, pulling on your identity. I see him throwing shame on people, reminding people of their past, of their mistakes. Of, of no, those are called sins. They're not mistakes. Those are sins. Jesus didn't die for our mistakes. He died for our sins. Stuff that, you know, where we fell short. And here is what the Lord has been stirring in my spirit. Many of you have heard me preach on this. Um, and I've posted it a lot, but the reason I keep talking about it is because it's always relevant. And so this morning, I just felt this stirring in my spirit as the Lord, and it's no coincidence that it's Martin. She felt a, she felt a stirring in her spirit, folks. Oh, man. Alert the media. I didn't even realize it was Martin Luther King Day today until I got up. And, um, you know, saw people posting on social media about it. So, um, but it was no coincidence to me because of this thing that that has just been pulling on people and you guys have just been in a battle and here's here's what the lord stirred my spirit here's all right I- so the lord stirred her spirit with a swizzle stick or something like that from heaven well he gave me this revelation you know i don't know a couple of years ago anyways so god gave her this revelation a couple of years ago but recently read stirred it you know in her spirit and stuff the size of your battle confirms the size of your anointing. <laughs> oh, she oh, she even like gave like a sassy look to the camera. You know, she's got big bug-eyed sunglasses on while driving. Um yeah, I hate to break this to you, Allison. I've been hearing this nonsense for decades. Yeah, you you, you may have claimed that you received downloads, you know, from the spirit and that stirred it with a swizzle stick and stuff. 
But the reality is, is I have heard people with far bigger followings than you talk exactly this way. You know, men like Stephen Furtick and, you know, T.D. Jakes and other known heretics and Bible twisters. And so the the claim that you, the, oh, this is a direct download that into your spirit from God. Yeah, that that didn't happen. You're, you're just making stuff up, telling people what they want to hear. And by the way, no biblical text says anything like this. I defy anybody to find, oh, the battle you're going through proves the size of your anointing. Hogwash. Talk about an ear-scratching, ear-tickling, hot mess. That's what that was. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at fire Christian. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Eric Dykstra and Levi Lusco. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. This might feel like theological waterboarding, but you'll get used to it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole every day is Friday thing and have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy!
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that YouTube prophetesses who prophesy while driving aren't really hearing from God. You'd probably tell them, pull over, don't talk! Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. No, three friendly yellow buttons. i got to remember that. Three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Uh, when you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute an amount of money that you choose. That's right. Four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Great way to support us, by the way. If you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you would like to make a one-time contribution, there's a couple options there. The first one is to click on the Donate button, fill out all the information there. The other is to make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. 
What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. That's right. doesn't matter what I do or what I say, as long as I do it with a flair. We're heading over to Elk River, Minnesota, and we're going to be checking in with Eric Dykstra. He has launched into a sermon series on relationships, and the reason why is, you know, because... Um, Valentine's Day. The The name of the sermon series, by the way, I hope you're sitting down, is Love Shack. And one of the major problems with this approach to sermonage, if you can even call this a sermon, is that uh, he's going to basically turn Jesus into some kind of uh, relationship guru. Yeah. And uh, Jesus, you know, is going to be giving us relationship advice. Now, uh, just so you know, as we jump into the sermon here, we're going to note that he has the the word the praise band has finished doing a cover song, and I don't know what the cover song is. I I not, I don't really listen to a lot of modern like like recent music, so I'm not sure what song it is. But apparently, the song is about a fellow who's married, who's kind of like making eyes and flirting with some other gal who's not his wife, and. And so uh, he's going to be commenting on that song. But again, I don't know what the song is. So here we go. Good evening, Crossy. How you doing tonight? That song breaks my heart. The Love Shack graphic is now up for the sermon. <laughs> as happy, clappy as it is, he externally is like, no, I'm not going home with you. But what do you want to do internally? He wants to go home with her. Like, the song is all about the fact, oh, no, I'm going to stay true. Really, I want to go home with you. You know, like, that's a recipe for divorce right there. Uh, yeah, that's called adultery. Jesus himself actually talks about that exact thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, he does. Um, <laughs> that if you look at a woman with lustful intent in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. That is a sin. Uh-huh. Like people, like this is the this is the, the the crazy thing to me. People believe that if I just say no, I can still, you know, I can have some eye candy on the side, you know. I can like, it's nothing wrong with looking. Nothing wrong with looking. Except that it destroys your heart. Yeah, no, actually, it <laughs> looking is not the thing that destroys your heart. Your heart was destroyed because you were born dead in trespasses and sins. It's because you have a destroyed heart, a sinful heart. That well, the, well, that you do those things. You see, he's got it backwards, and uh, oh man! It, in fact, let me let me pull this up in the Bible here because Jesus himself it literally says that adultery begins in the heart. Let me do a quick check in my Bible here. Yet here it is, Matthew fifteen, verse nineteen. Jesus says, "For out of the heart." Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Yeah, you see, yeah, looking at somebody doesn't mess up your heart. The reason you're looking at somebody who's not your wife or your husband is because you have a sinful heart. Yeah, it's already messed up. Destroys your trust with your spouse. It ruins the possibility of something beautiful with the one you said yes to. The, the whole song, like, like my, my son's getting married in May, so... 
we heard the song. Yeah. Brad, Brad and Alana getting married in May. They're like, they're, like, we were talking about the song and he was just. Yeah, that's right. Eric Dykstra will be a grandpa pretty soon. Man, that song pisses me off. It's the kind of song that when somebody is honorable, they want to punch that dude in the head. Because when you see somebody that corrupt, that like, you know, like, I know, baby, we can flirt a little bit, but you know, I'm still married. I got to go home. Your your character's jacked, man. Right. Yeah. That, that's called adultery. Yeah. And Jesus, again, talks explicitly about that exact thing. Yeah. Says it's adultery. Really, really broken inside of you that you got to go get a little bit of affirmation from somebody you're not married to when you're wearing the ring. Now, here, here's the funny thing. Okay. Now, he's preaching God's law not very well. And since they draw a fairly decent-sized crowd there at the Crossing Church in Elk R- River, Minnesota, that, uh, that, that, well, we've got a problem. And that is is that <laughs> there are people sitting there going, amen, amen, amen. And there are people in the audience there right now going, ugh, ugh, uh, that's me, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're being convicted of their sins. But he's not going he's not hitting this up as adultery as a sin that Christ has bled and died for. You see over and again the problem with churches like the Crossing Church is that they will preach God's law not very well, but well enough to nail you to the wall and then what then becomes the solution? You got to fix the problem by doing better, doing gooder. So if you've just been nailed to the wall because you're a married fellow or a married gal, this works both ways, by the way, and you, your eye has been wandering, uh, you need to know this. You're sinning. You, you straight up have sinned. And you are an adulterer. Yep. And if you've broken one of the commandments, you've broken them all. You are in desperate need because at this point, there's no way to reconcile with God on your own. There's, there's no amount of good works that you can perform. You could turn everything around, put blinders on, and, you know, and make sure that you never ever look at somebody of the opposite sex with any kind of lustful intent at all, and you still deserve hell. Mm-hmm. So cleaning up your act isn't going to fix the problem. You need a crucified and risen Savior for that, and thankfully, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. So over and again, what we see happening is as you hear God's law somewhat kind of preached, and then the which then identifies that there's a problem, but the solution is you need to apply principles to your life. You need to fix your behavior. And there's no real preaching about you're guilty before God and you need to repent, be forgiven, and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance, which is what Scripture teaches. Does that make sense? And so that's why we're doing Love Shack, because that's the culture, man. The culture is around us is, hey, just sleep around. That's cool. And if you're married, we'll just flirt a little bit. It ain't no big thing. And then go home and see how that works for you. And we can't figure out why people get in divorce. Oh, why relationships are falling apart. Why, why, we, why nobody can stay faithful. It's because we're getting bad advice. Now, to be fair, the song is catchy. <laughs> but I'm not sure it's good 
relationship advice. In fact, I, I would. It's not good relationship. Let, let's. It, I don't know why you're uncertain about this. I guarantee. I don't even even heard the song. I don't even know what it is. It's bad relationship advice. But <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think whoever made the song. I may be wrong, having not heard this. That whatever the song is, I don't think they they're singing the song to advise people on how to conduct their marriages and relationships. I'm pretty sure that's not what the song is for. I would suggest that Jesus has a lot better relationship advice. Really? Really? So Jesus has relationship advice. That's what God's law apparently is. It's just good relationship advice. Uh, No, no, no. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at some of the words of Christ this week and next week on Christ's relationship advice for singles. Relationship advice for singles. Are you kidding me? Uh, For those who are married, for those who have already gone through divorce and the pain of that, we're going to kind of like approach it from a bunch of different angles. Uh, This week, uh, we're going to be in Mark. Yeah, I've read the Gospels through many times, translated most of the Gospels totally. And I um, don't recall any of the sections in the Gospels where Jesus' teachings are recorded of him giving relationship advice. Next week we're going to be in John chapter 2. This week is more of a teaching that he like, he like teaches you about relationships. And next week we're going to look at a story. Gets- John 2 is a story. It's a relationship advice story. Are you kidding me? Invited to a wedding and how that story brings out the kind of the secret sauce for relationships. What? The, the story of the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee reveals the secret sauce for relationships. No, no, it, it, it doesn't. Tonight, I want you to grab a note. You got a note sheet for me? Hold it up. Okay, uh, this is one of those, mo- those moments that uh, if you'd like to not screw up your relationship, you might want to take some notes. Yeah, by the way, I mean, let's take a look. <laughs> I just out of pure curiosity and see if we can figure out how he thinks John chapter two reveals the secret sauce of relationships. (laughs) All right. Uh, John chapter two, verse one on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone uh, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. So that's Jesus' first public miracle. And his disciples, as a result of it, believed in him. 
since Eric Dykstra has posited the thought that <laughs> this story reveals the secret sauce of relationships, <laughs> one just has to wonder, is wine the secret sauce of <laughs> a successful marriage? <laughs> he can't make this up. Now, by the way, he will get to the John 2 text this coming uh, Sunday, uh, so we'll have to wait to see what he does with it. But I can't wait. We'll have to check back in with Eric Dykstra next week to see what the secret sauce from John 2 is for a successful (laughs) marriage. All right, moving along, it's time for a vision casting leader update. That requires us to do this. Ministry Records and uh, 
their song, Casting Vision. All right, so we're heading over to Fresh Life Church out there in Montana, and we're going to be checking in with Levi Lusco. The name of the sermon is From Evening to Morning. It's from the sermon series titled You in Five Years. You in Five Years. And I just have to ask the question, has Levi Lusco just given up on Christianity because he isn't even trying anymore to, like, teach Scripture, <laughs> like what the Bible really says? I mean, he's, like, dialing this one in. You know, he's phoning in this sermon. And it's, I mean, it's like he, this is a self-help pep talk, you know, go and make your life better and be self-disciplined kind of sermon. And what he does with the biblical text here is awful, but it's, it's so low energy. It's just like, I just have to ask the question, has he like just given up on this Christianity thing? And he, he just seems like he's going through the motions because he's making no effort to actually engage in any biblical exegesis. So without any further ado, here's Levi Lesko from evening to morning. You in five years. Here we go. Recent messages that we're calling you in five years. And we've been just really plowing through it and having so much fun. First week, we asked the question, who? Who, who do I want to be five years from now? And Yeah, who do I want to be? Me? I want to be me. I want to be, you know, I'm going to be Chris. <laughs> I mean, this, I mean, seriously, did, did you get this message from Anthony Robbins? Is that where I'm heading? Because if not, if that's not, if where I'm heading is not where I want to be, then now's the time to make a change. Uh, the second week of the series, we asked the question, why? Why is it so difficult to change? By the way, this is not Christian sanctification or bearing fruit in keeping with repentance or, you know, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. This just sounds like self-help kind of pablum stuff. And we found that the answer is inertia. Inertia. Yeah, the re- yeah you need inertia. Yeah, it says no biblical text anywhere. Inertia, yeah. Is either our best friend or our worst enemy. And then last week we asked the question, how? How are we going to change? And the answer... By repenting, being forgiven, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in helping to um, cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, right? ...was one step at a time. And- yeah. Do you you need a crucified and risen Savior for these things that he's said? Like, not at all. Yeah, no. I mean, you can be a Buddhist and apply these steps. You can be a Muslim and apply these steps. You can be anybody. You don't have to be Christian. There's nothing Christian about what he just said. What God wants us to do... It's not going to have visible progress always. Uh, We're going to be taking steps of obedience long before we see the effects of it paying off in our lives. And this week, we want to ask the question, when? When uh, are we going to find time in our lives to to make these steps that are going to move us towards where we want to be? And so that's what we're going to talk about. If you have a Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 1 is where I'd like you to turn. Uh, So Genesis chapter 1 is going to tell me when to apply these steps so that I can be a better me in five years. I guarantee you that Genesis chapter 1 has nothing, and I mean like nothing to do whatsoever with the when as to apply this, the, you know, this new you or better you in five years concept. Where we're going to have a message that uh, I'm calling from evening to morning. 
from evening to morning. That's that's when uh, we're going to see our lives change, really. Yeah, we're going to see our lives change from evening to morning. You know why? Because, you know, Genesis 1, you know. I think uh, is, is, is in that period of time. There's lots of places we could have turned in Scripture, though, to find these words popping up, evening and morning. Uh, yeah, let's just go find the words, evening and morning. That'll tell us how God's going to make a better me in five years. Yeah, no. The, 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 what are you doing? All over the Bible, I made a little list, and uh, you see them in, in fact, uh, the book of Exodus. This is when God was uh, choosing to feed his people in the wilderness miraculously. Uh, some of you may know there were donuts just falling from the sky. Uh, I mean, they used a different word in, in, the, in the old days. Uh, it was called manna, but it was the, the Bible says... Manna were not donuts. Were made of bread, and they tasted like honey. So what does that sound like to you? Crispy, cream, donuts, falling... But they also uh, they also had uh, different uh, meat that, that came. But look, when, when did they eat? They ate in the evening, and then they ate in the morning. Yeah, Exodus sixteen thirteen. So it was that quail came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. Therefore, the the in order to be a better you in five years, it's got to be in the evening and the morning. <laughs> What? That's when they had the one, and that's when they had the other. Meat in the evening, and then donuts in the morning. Sounds about right to me. Uh, then we could also look at Psalm 90, where when the psalmist is describing how... A whole so notice he's just using some Bible program to find the words evening and morning. Because everybody knows when you see the words evening and morning, that'll give you the, the when as to how to apply these steps to be a better you in five years. Life is like a day. A whole life is like a day. He said this, in the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it's cut down and withers. Kind of like one of those. Uh, yeah, so the words morning and evening appear in Psalm 90, verse 6. So you can be a better you in five years. This is patently absurd. You don't even need a second grade education to see that this is nonsense. These texts don't tell us how to be a better me in five years. Uh, kinds of plants that pops up quickly and then is gone just as fast. Um, when speaking about why we should diversify our portfolio and not put all of our eggs in one basket, please. Uh, Right, yeah. Diversify your portfolio texts that go along with this evening morning stuff. Okay. Gastes tells us this, that we should in the morning plant our seeds, in the evening keep our hands busy, because you don't know what will succeed. It may be the one... Yeah, so Ecclesiastes 11.6 has the word morning and evening in it. You know, those, those two words together, it's, it's a magic combo, apparently, that will just revolutionize your life you know maybe the other or my both might do equally well he's, he's saying yeah have your seed that you've sowed but you, what are you going to do while you're waiting for it to grow use that time and figure out another business get a store on etsy or or, or whatever start a kickstarter and you know find ways to to, to make some some money because uh, your, your your field may not produce and then what are you going to do and plus you have your days free you know what are you what are you going to do stand there watching your, your grain grow we could talk about uh, the return of Christ. Hello. That's a good thing to talk about. Uh, because when is he going to come back? I don't know. I don't know. 
but here, here's what he said. He said it could be, look at this, in the evening, could be at midnight, could be when the rooster crows, could be at dawn. Yeah, see, Mark thirteen thirty five. Jesus said, you, you know, evening and midnight and dawn. All three of those words appeared. Mark thirteen thirty five. So you could be a better you in five years, man. I love he gave us all these options. Like, just uh, here's what it could be. Jesus, when are you coming back? Here's, I'm gonna tell you when. I'm like, okay, got a pen. Okay, great. Could be in the morning. Could be nighttime. Could be bedtime. They, they threw their pen away. Like, okay, I see what you did there. Look, very clever. Well played, right? Uh, I'm not gonna go on, but forty times in the Bible, the word evening and morning show up in the same verse. So it's so what. In how many passages of Scripture do the words evening and morning show up in regards to how to have a better you in five years? It's really a theme all over, all over the place. But my favorite is the first. Literally the first like, part of the Bible. The first chapter of the first part of the Bible is Genesis. And in chapter 1, verse 1, you can't go further back than this, guys. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So look at this. The evening... And the morning were the first day. Yeah, Genesis 1-5. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Yeah, the words evening and morning. So you are going to be a better you in five years, man. So the when to apply these steps to be a better you in five years. Evening and morning. Yeah, that's this is nonsense. Like This is like low-energy heresy. It's like he's not even trying. And, of course, he uses a bullpen just like Stephen Furtick. So he's got people there to manipulate the others into thinking that what he's saying is profound and true. These texts were not written to say how to be a better you in five years. First time days pop up in the Bible, they're defined in Scripture this way as an evening followed by a day. That's different than how we think about it. We actually think about it quite confusing. Because the day actually begins at 12 a.m., but we think of a brand new day as really when we get out of bed in the morning. So we think of a day, a brand new day. Man, I've got a brand new day in front of me. Ah, coffee, a whole day in front of me. Well, technically, we've been in that day since midnight, but Scripture's uh, picture of a day starts when the sun goes down. It starts when the sun goes down. And that's how the Jews reckoned time. They viewed it from sunset to sunset. That's the 24-hour period. It's the evening followed by the day. The evening followed by the day. The evening's the beginning of the day. Then you have the whole day that follows. And, and here's where we're going. I want us to focus on a day. And if we think about a day in terms of 24 hours. So he's going to the magic drawing board now. We'll give each uh, hour a line. Okay, so I'm going to going to make 24 lines. He's making 24 lines across the magic board here. Yeah, yeah, cuz you know Bible says evening morning, you know, so you want to be a better you in 5 years, you need to uh, apply Genesis 1:5, evening morning. Yeah. 
Had to get creative at the end. Okay, so here's our 24-hour day. I want us to think about what, what this is presenting for us, the idea of sunset triggering your day, which in... Yeah, so you gotta, you got to adjust your sunset trigger thing. You got to go with the sunset as the trigger for your day thing. The locations where we have church, and by the way, hello to every single location across Montana, Utah, Oregon. Yeah, they're they're multi-siting this nonsense. And Wyoming. Uh, Also, hello to Church Online, Fresh Life TV. So glad to have you with us. So in the area at this time of the year, 5.30 p.m. is on average when the sun is going down. And if we think about when it's, generally speaking, rising up, we're talking about... He's counting the hashtags. Around this time of day where we have the sun popping up. Okay, so 8 a.m., 5.30 p.m., what do we have in between? 14 and a half hours. Okay, so that's the chunk of time that I want us to really be focused on. Why? This is from evening to morning. Right, you know, because Genesis one five, evening to morning. So you gotta you gotta focus on on this chunk of time from five thirty to eight a.m. From evening when the sun goes down to morning when the sun comes up. That is primarily, I believe, the win of your time to take the small steps that are going to change your life. Yeah, you see that because Genesis one five, man. Yeah. So when do you take these small steps to change your life? During vampire hours, yeah, in, in, when it's dark outside. This is the block of time that we should be fixated and focused on. Now, ironically speaking, we generally will talk about this as when... 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. We have a day. If your day begins here, you think about my brand new day, you know, by here you're starting to end the day. This is my day. We focus on our our day right here, 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. This is our day. But the nine and a half hours that makes up the section that we think of as our day is the part of our day that we have the least control over. By the way, they, wow, that just happened. That's from the bullpen. Mm -hmm. He is a seeker-driven, attractional guy who's following the footsteps of Stephen Furtick. And the bullpen is a group of volunteers whose whole job is to basically gush with profundity. Go, oh, oh, this is like changing my life. Is whoa, yeah, that's their whole job. It's a form of manipulation. Most of us have things that we have to do during this period of time. Got to get Billy to soccer. Got to get you know the kids to school. Got to be at work. Got I have to be in this meeting. This is when the doctor's appointment is. This is when the dentist appointment is. This is when the DMV is open. This is when the dry cleaner is open. This is when the florist is open. This is when the post office is open. This is when the UPS store is open. This is when I can register for TSA pre at the airport when it's in. This is everything has to fit here. Life is craziest here. Yeah, notice he's not exegeting any text. He's just done a word search for the words morning and evening. And since we're, it's all about being a better you in five years, that's what people want to be. I mean, you know, this, how do you supercharge your New Year's resolutions? I know. 
We'll find the words evening and morning and so that we can make it look like this is a biblical teaching. This is the, the time you really want to focus in on improving yourself is when the sun goes down and before it comes up. Uh-huh. You, this here is messy and dirty and chaotic and, 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 and full of, of unpredictability. Even Yeah, the problem is, is when it's dark outside, it's not chaotic. I'm usually asleep. Yeah, I don't know about you, but you know, you know, when it's dark outside and stuff, and or it gets too late, I'm 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 in bed sleeping. Yeah, not a lot of time to do stuff, you know, to make me myself better in five years while I'm sleeping. On the best of circumstances, so we tend to focus on and to push things towards what we have the least control over, and we neglect. There goes the bullpen again. Whoa, whoa. The far superior period of our lives that is probably the most disproportionately powerful when it comes to actually affecting the life that you live. So what I think we should do is quit focusing on with apologies to Charles Spurgeon, who wrote the best-selling devotional of all time from morning to evening, which is how I assure you that. Charles Spurgeon did not write the devotional from morning to evening as well, you know, the the application of when to make yourself better over the next five years. I assure you, Spurgeon wrote nothing even remotely resembling what we're hearing in this so-called sermon. We think about it and rather flip it and start thinking about our life in terms of from evening to morning. These 14 and a half hours. I like to sometimes put my whole message into a neat and tidy sentence so that if you tune... All right, so here is his entire sermon distilled down into one sentence. See if this sounds anything remotely biblical in, in regards to sanctification. Christian sanctification or have narcolepsy that you'll still get the essence of what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say in this message is this. If you anchor your evenings and your mornings, then in the middle of the day, come what may, you've already had a great day. That's my message. Oh, you are kidding me. (laughs) Wow. That is lame. I mean, underwhelming. I seriously, wow. And of course, the volunteers, their whole job is to go, oh, that was the best. This is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Levi Lesko, I, again, I just have to ask the question, has he given up on Christianity? I mean, he isn't even making any effort at all nowadays to actually rightly handle a biblical text. I mean, that was just bizarre. I mean... It's like he's trying at the moment to figure out how to be a like self-help life coach guru type while putting a little bit of effort, just a smidge of effort into, you know, baptizing his self-help pep talks to make them look biblical. But there was nothing biblical about that. I mean, that was a complete and utter travesty no effort at all to actually make it look like it was biblical just except for well i did a word search and you know in my word search you know i found a whole bunch of verses where you know the words evening and morning showed up so therefore you know um (laughs) 
Therefore, you know, you can be a better you in five years if you just, you know, anchor your uh, your efforts in, uh, you know. <laughs> you get the point. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charming. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. We're number two. Fighting for the faith. I mean, seriously. Says evening and morning in scripture, so you just get to anchor your self-help uh, applications to make yourself a better person in five years by considering sundown as the beginning of your new day. It'll revolutionize everything, man. Ugh. All right, let's do this right. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley Stoke on Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. The name of the message is Man's Works and God's Works. It is a look at the biblical basis behind Luther's Heidelberg Disputation and the Theses regarding it. And I think, again, it's very fascinating that uh, Pastor Charmley is doing this. He's part historian, part theologian. So let's go ahead and get to it. And without any further ado, here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley and Man's Works and God's Works. Here we go. 
Our scripture reading this afternoon is found in Paul's epistle to the Philippians and chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The apostle is writing to the church at Philippi who have been very gracious and very helpful to him in his time of need. The gospel is for them very, very important. And he writes to thank them and to encourage them and to build them up by focusing them on the Lord Jesus and what he has done and turning them away from those who are trying to focus them in on their own works, whatever they may be. So Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am also circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as a rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have asked for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. May God bless the reading of his <coughs> holy word. Now last week we started looking at Martin Luther's uh, Heidelberg Theses, the Theological Theses of the Heidelberg Disputation. And we look at the first two theses, the law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him. Much less can human works, which are done over and over again, with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end. And this week we go on to look at Theses 3 through 6. Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. Although the works of God are always unattractive and appear evil, they are nevertheless eternal merits. The works of God are thus not mortal sins, we speak of works which are apparently good, as though they were crimes. The works of God, we speak of those which he does through man, are thus not merits as though they were sinless. Now, these theses were written almost exactly 500 years ago, and the whole thrust of the, the Heidelberg theses is about the relationship between the law of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law and grace, how do these two work together? And how do our works relate to God's work? And in these theses we have God's works and man's works put in parallel to each other so we can compare them. And the first thing that Luther points out to us is that we must be concerned with reality more than with appearance. Appearance is something that human beings are very deeply concerned with. To the point, however, that people can be misled if all they go by is appearances. Just today in the Sentinel, there's a story of... Uh, fellow who was a, a used car salesman who has been prosecuted for faking entries in car logbooks to make it look as if cars had been serviced when they hadn't. He put a stamp in to say this car had a full service when it hadn't. And why did he do it? Well, this then meant he could sell the car as though it had a full service and ask more money for it. Appearance. But there were those, of course, who looked into the reality, and that's why he ended up in court. But if we just look at the appearance of things, we can be misled. And the Pharisees in the Bible are a great example of the triumph of style, if you will, or appearance over substance, that is, over reality. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks of them in 
Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. Matthew 23, and reading from verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Now there's an illustration that probably most of us can relate to. If you have a cup or a dish, a plate that's been used, what's the most important part to clean? The inside of the bit you drink out of, you eat at. You eat from the bit that's going to be in contact with the food. If you just clean the outside of a cup, but you never clean the inside, well, eventually it's going to be pretty awful inside the cup. And that's the, the illustration Jesus gives. It's These people are so concerned about appearances, that they're not concerned about the inside at all. He goes on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Two very important words. Hypocrisy is derived from a Greek word that means actor. A hypocrite is an actor. But of course it came to be a, a, a term that was used in popular speech for somebody who in day-to-day -day life was playing a part. That the way they behaved and the way they were on the inside contrasted because of course in the ancient world actors wore masks. So you knew which part the actor was playing from the mask they had on. Perhaps an equivalent today would be that they will wear different costumes depending on which part they're playing. And again, it's dressing up, playing a part, but the reality is very different. Most of us understand that the actor and the role that they play are two different things. But what do you do when somebody's day-to-day -day life is an act? And lawlessness... Now, lawlessness, of course, is the phrase that is the word that the Apostle John uses when he says that sin is lawlessness. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his condemnation of false disciples, says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And lawlessness, the idea is that it's man wanting to be his own boss. He won't be controlled by anything outside of him. He's a, a, an anarchist in the spiritual realm. He doesn't want a, a ruler. And so Jesus says these people, these Pharisees, they said that they were the set-apart ones. They were the ones who were dedicated to God and they looked down their noses at the ordinary folk and said, the people of the land, the Am Haaretz in Hebrew, they don't know the law, but we know the law. Well, they did know the law. They just didn't do the law. That's what lawlessness means. 
It reminds me of the story of uh, in a, a warehouse one day, a manager's going by and sees this uh, member of staff who is opening boxes. And the staff member's got a pair of scissors and has got the scissors open and is cutting towards himself. And the manager says, uh, so-and-so, um, do you remember the, the health and safety notices on opening packages? Oh, yes, says the worker. Yes, use a box cutter. Only have as much of the blade out as you need and always cut away from yourself. What are you doing? Well, I'm using a pair of scissors. I'm going towards myself. I know the he, he said, I know the rules. He just didn't care to follow them. Well, that's lawlessness. I know the rules. I'm just not going to follow them. That's what people are like. But people, the Pharisees, knew the rules. They did what they could to appear to be keeping them. It's rather like the man who, as long as the boss is around, look busy. As soon as the boss is gone, do what you like. But of course, God is always watching. But people, like the Pharisees, they play this part before everybody else. But God searches the heart. God doesn't just look upon the, the outward. He looks upon the heart. When God had rejected King Saul from being the, the ruler over Israel, he sent the prophet Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be Saul's successor. And so it happened that First Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, so it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab, the eldest, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. The same thing is said in the Psalms, in Psalm 147. Psalm 147. He does, verse 10, he does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. It's not the outward things, it's the inward. God seeks truth in the inward parts. And the problem with the works of men, the works of men that is apart from God's grace is that they're apart from God's grace in the book of Acts Acts chapter 15 and verse 9 we read of the fact that God cleanses the heart by faith so the apostle Peter says 
This is talking about the about salvation. He says, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. The heart is purified by faith, by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing in God. And because works done without faith are done without faith, and without faith it is impossible to please God, then Luther can say, although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. Now, mortal sins isn't Protestant language. We must remember that Luther is writing this in 1518, when he is still a Catholic monk, and he's on his way out of that theology. He's still using the language of Catholic theology. And in Catholic theology, Roman Catholic theology, there's a, a because sanctification and justification are merged together in one, that is, justification is being right with God, sanctification being made more like Jesus, in this sense, then they have this idea that the justification can be increased or decreased or even lost. And so you had with the, the medieval theology came up with this distinction between venial sins, which are sins that reduce, think of it rather like one of these uh, thermometers and you've got the mercury that goes up or down depending on the temperature, and according to the, the medieval theology, then a venial sin will make your level of justification go down. But a mortal sin breaks a thermometer, you've got to start all over again. In other words, the idea is a mortal sin breaks your fellowship with God or gets in the way of fellowship with God. Now, Luther didn't hold this idea, but what Luther's really saying here is this, that the works of men, apart from God's grace get in between human beings and God. They prevent fellowship with him. In other words, as long as we're depending on our good works to be right with God, we'll never be right with God. Because our good works are all mixed with sin. As John Newton puts in one of his hymns, he says... Our best is stained and marred with sin. Our all is nothing worth. And therefore, man's works, however attractive, and indeed the more attractive they are, apparently, the more likely they are to get in between us and God's salvation, as long as they are works apart from grace. So we can look at the, the things that people do that are Apparently great things that are good things, giving to the poor, this sort of thing. And yet, as long as they're done apart from the grace of God, they get in the way of salvation. Because man is fallen and needs to be saved. On the other hand, Luther says, although the works of God are always unattractive. He's, again, he's talking, of course, about human, human judgment and appear evil they are. Nevertheless, really eternal merits. And the, the great passage that Luther appeal, appeals to to demonstrate this is 
Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, it's a well-known passage about the Lord Jesus, one of the most striking prophecies, predictive prophecies of Christ. And he says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. There is the natural man's perception of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's offensive. Man doesn't like it. And so it is that the apostle can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1 from verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And again he can say, the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. That's what God's work looks like. A crucified man. What can you do with a crucified man? Crucifixion was a shameful, horrible, vile punishment reserved for the lowest of the low. To speak of crucifixion in polite company in the first century was really to give it the most enormous faux pas you could. And you could very easily find yourself suddenly, everyone say, did you just say crucify? And they would move to the other side of the room and make sure they had nothing to do with you for a while at least. You didn't talk about it in polite company, but we preach Christ crucified. It appears offensive, it appears evil, it appears bad. And yet, in reality, God's work is the greatest merit of all. And again, what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. He says, you must humble yourself as a little child. All of that is contrary to the natural man. The natural man says, exalt yourself. The natural man says, indulge yourself. And the natural man certainly doesn't say, take up your cross, because the only people who took up their crosses were those who were going to be crucified. Be ready to die. No, no, says the natural man, be ready to live. But the reality is, of course, that whoever will save, try to save his life will lose it. And what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And again Isaiah goes on, Surely he, the Lord Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only salvation there is is salvation by the death of Christ. May it never be, says the Apostle Paul, that I should glory in anything but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gloried in the cross. He rejoiced in the cross. We preach Christ crucified. Why? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God in Christ crucified. God coming into the world in a little child. Foolishness to the world, it looks ridiculous. Where's the power, where's the might, where's the strength? It's weakness. And yet the, the weakness of God is stronger than man. And so the Christian doesn't judge by appearances only, but delves down into the depths and by the Spirit sees that the works of man, however great they may look, are worthless because they're stained and marred with sin. But the works of God, however worthless they look, are infinite, eternal, everlasting glory. And then again Luther goes on and says the works of men are not mortal sins as though they were crimes. But they are nevertheless sins. And his point is this very much. There's no merit in our works. None whatsoever. Reading Philippians put me in mind of a passage in John Wesley's journal, which is John Wesley writing in January 1738. 1738. It's now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why that... I, the least of what I, the least of all, suspected that I, who went to America to convert others, was never con- myself converted to God. I am not mad, though I thus speak, but I speak the words of truth and soberness. If haply some of those who still dream may awake and see that as I am, so are they. Are they read in philosophy? So was I. In ancient or modern tongues? So was I also. Are they versed in the science of divinity? That's theology. I too have studied it many years. Can they talk fluently on spiritual things? The very same could I do. Are they plenteous in alms? Behold, I gave all my goods to feed the poor. They give of their labour as well as of their substance. I have laboured more abundantly than they all. Are they willing to suffer for their brethren? I have thrown up my friends, reputation, ease, country. I have put my life in my hand, wandering into strange lands. I have given my body to be devoured by the deep, parched up with heat, consumed by toil and weariness, or whatever God should please to bring upon me. But does all this, be it more or less, it matters not, make me acceptable to God? Does all I ever did or can know, 
say, give, do, or suffer, justify me in his sight. Yea, or the constant use of all the means of grace, which nevertheless is meet, right, and our bounden duty. Or that I know nothing of myself, that I am, as touching outward moral righteousness, blameless or, to come closer yet, the having a rational conviction of all the truths of Christianity. Does all this give me a claim to the holy, heavenly, divine character of a Christian? By no means. If the oracles of God are true, if we are still able to abide by the law and the testimony, all these things, though when ennobled by faith in Christ they are holy and just and good, yet without it are dung and dross, meet only to be purged away by the fire that shall never quench, shall never be quenched. This, then, I have learned in the ends of the earth, that I am fallen short of the glory of God, that my whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable, and consequently my whole life, seeing it cannot be that an evil tree should bring forth good fruit, that alienated as I am from the life of God, I am a child of wrath, an heir of hell, that my own works, my own sufferings, my own righteousness are so far from reconciling me to an offended God, so far from making any atonement for the least of those sins, which are more in number than the hairs of my head, that the most specious of them have need an atonement themselves, or they cannot abide his righteous judgment, that having the sentence of death in my heart, and having nothing in or of myself to plead, I have no hope, but that of being justified freely through the redemption that is in Jesus. I have no hope, but that if I seek I shall find Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith. There was, there was Wesley brought right to this point of saying, every good thing I have done counts for nothing before God. Only Jesus, only Christ counts before God. And so he went about his life until... That great and wonderful day in May of that year, where he writes, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for my salvation, as an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the Lord of sin and death. He was brought to the end of himself, that he might be brought to Christ, and then brought to Christ, he found in Christ that glorious salvation. Our good works are worth nothing before God. They are useful to us. They are useful to our neighbours. But they are not useful in saving us. And even, Luther goes on to say, even those good works, those works of God which he does through man, are not merits. 
That's to say we can't even say, well, look, God has done all these things through me and therefore I deserve something back. Our relationship to God is never a matter of quid pro quo, this or that. It's always a matter of grace. And that means that when we know that we have failed, we don't then go about some sort of penance to try and earn our way back to God. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And at the same time, if we have done good things that we ought to have done, we can't then say, and therefore I deserve something. Because our relationship with God is always a matter of grace. Even the good works of Christians have their flaws, have their faults. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, it says in Ecclesiastes 7.20. In other words, even in our good works, our best is stained and marred with sin. And so we cannot trust in anything we do. And so we have to trust wholly in him. Even as John Wesley came to see, I trust in Christ, in Christ alone. In Christ alone. God shows us that we cannot work our way to him. So that we may know and be saved by grace. Even as we see here the Apostle Paul speaking of how he counts all his good works as as nothing, as worse than nothing. To gain Christ, to gain him. Salvation is by grace alone, not by what we do. And as Christians then we, we judge things as they really are. Luther goes on to say this in more detail later in the theses. We look at things as they really are and trust wholly and solely in the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or may he help us to do so and may he grant a greater, deeper assurance that our sins, even ours, are forgiven for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till Tuesday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.